All right, so here we are uh, in Ephesians once again, and we come now to our final study here in this epistle of Paul to the church in Ephesus. And, and before we look at the, the passage that we'll finish up with today, I wanted to just kind of highlight where we've been over the past 16 months as we made our way uh, through this study. You remember perhaps that we, we considered it from the standpoint of being a revelation of the wealth, the walk, and, and the warfare of the Christian. And in the first few chapters, the first three chapters, Paul really lays out for us the wealth of the Christian. And as I pointed out before, in those three chapters, there's no personal application necessarily in the sense of uh, Christian duty. The first three chapters are just uh, the apostle reminding us and, and telling us in a variety of different ways all of the great and wonderful things that God has done for us, the wealth that we have as his people. And so let me just give you some quick reminders of some of the stuff that we looked at. We saw there uh, that we are chosen. We're, we're God's chosen people. We're chosen by the Father. We are redeemed by the Son. We are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. And that's that's kind of the the emphasis that Paul introduces us uh, to the epistle with. Uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he moves on to talk about how, although we were formerly dead in trespasses and sins, we've been made alive together in Christ, and how all of this has been done through God's grace. It's there in the second chapter, that famous statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he goes on to tell us that we, as the church, are actually God's masterpiece. Every, everything that God has created, the universe itself, the earth, and all of the various life forms and everything is as majestic as all of that is, that is even the angelic realm. Uh, Paul tells us here that the church is the ultimate in God's uh, creative work. We, we are his masterpiece. And we, non-Jews, Gentiles, who have been brought into this new thing, we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God. Remember, Paul uh, told us we're actually part of a new uh, humanity. God is doing a whole new thing, with the, starting with the church. He's creating a new humanity. God has become our father, and as our father, he is doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that's working in us. All of these things and more are part of the wealth that we possess as Christians. So then from there, having laid out for us all of these great things that God has done. It's only then that the apostle brings us to the, the personal application part where he begins to exhort us on how to walk. And remember, the word walk is a word that's really referring to our lifestyle, our, our conduct, our manner of living. He starts, he says that we're to walk worthy of the Lord. He starts it all there. 
He says that we are to walk in unity with one another. He uh, says, essentially, we are to walk righteously. And he, he gives us the contrast between unrighteous living and righteous living. Uh, we are to walk in love. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. We're to walk in love. He says we are to walk in the light and we are to walk in wisdom. And there in that same portion, he, he talks about um, being filled with the Spirit and how being filled with the Spirit is going to impact us in every facet of our life. It's going to impact us personally. It's going to impact us in the context of our families, our marriages, our uh, parenting and child rearing and all of those kinds of things. It's going to impact us in the workplace, out in the world, and uh, being filled with the Spirit is going to impact what we do right here in the church. And so that's the wealth, the walk. And then finally, as you know, we've been talking about the warfare. The warfare, be strong in the Lord. As Paul is coming to the, to, to the conclusion of the, of the epistle, remember there in verse 10, he says, finally, my brethren, as he conclude things, uh, concludes things, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God. And so we've been looking at uh, all of the different facets of this uh, spiritual battle that we are in. And then Paul brings that to a conclusion with praying always, with all prayer and supplication and uh, praying for the saints. And so now we come to verse 19, where he then includes himself in this request for prayer. And pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so here's Paul's request. And then from verses 21 to 24, he just really concludes the epistle but that you also may know my affairs, speaking to those there in Ephesus, and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ, in sincerity, amen. And so there it is, the conclusion of the epistle. But I want to focus today, as we do conclude, I want to focus on Paul's request for prayer. You know, sometimes we can mistakenly think that Christian leaders are, you know, stronger than everybody else, and they're sort of immune to the the struggles and the difficulties and the problems that the average Christian person goes through, uh, that is not true. We, we are just as uh, weak and feeble and vulnerable as, as anybody else. Uh, all that to say, we need prayer. And here's the great Apostle Paul, the person that we think of as uh, invincible, the person who is just, you know, he's filled with, with courage and there's, there's never a, a daunting uh, situation from his point of view, we, we would think. But the fact of the matter is, uh, Paul was human just like we are. 
And here he acknowledges his own need and his own dependency on the prayers of others. And so those of us who are in Christian leadership, those of us who are in pastoral roles or uh, positions where we are, are publicly preaching the gospel or whatever the case, we need prayer and we depend on prayer. And, and part of, um, again, part of the, the way we wage war is, is praying for one another. And part of the way that, that you make a, a contribution is to pray for us as well. Uh, those of us that have the opportunity, maybe that the average person doesn't have, we have the opportunity to, to publicly speak forth the gospel. We find ourselves many times in situations, uh, unique kinds of situations where we get to uh, testify on behalf of Christ. And, and yet those kinds of things can be intimidating. So we're so dependent on the fact that you're praying for us. And we're so thankful that you are. And Paul recognized his own need for that. And so he says, pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly. So two things that he's asking for specifically, that utterance may be given to me and that I may speak forth boldly. Uh, The word utterance here could be, you could you could translate it actually clarity. Paul is saying, pray for me for clarity. Pray for me so when I open my mouth to speak the gospel that I speak it forth clearly, but not only pray for clarity, but pray for boldness or pray for courage. We need courage to speak forth the gospel. The devil, one of his tactics is, is intimidation. He's always seeking to intimidate. He wants us to be quiet. He, he doesn't want us to speak. So he, he comes with all different kinds of threats. Sometimes they're just, you know, things in our own head, like, well, you know, if you say that, what, what are these people going to think about you? Uh, but sometimes it's even more, uh, physically, type of a, of a threat. You know, some, sometimes people would say, you know, either you be quiet or, or we'll, we'll silence you ourselves by beating you or by casting you into prison or, or, or something like that. Of course, those would have been the kinds of things that Paul faced. And those are the kinds of things that some people still face today. But clarity and courage, that's what he's asking for prayer for. Let me read to you from John Stott. He said this. He said, clarity and courage remain two of the most crucial characteristics of authentic Christian preaching. For they relate to the content of the message preached and to the style of its presentation. Some preachers have the gift of lucid teaching, but their sermons lack solid content. Their substance has become diluted by fear. Others are bold as lions. They fear nobody and omit nothing, but what they say is confused and confusing. Clarity without courage is like sunshine in the desert. Plenty of light, but nothing worth looking at. Courage without clarity is like a beautiful landscape at nighttime. Plenty to see, but no light 
by which to see it. What is needed in the pulpits of the world today is a combination of clarity and courage. I think he's so absolutely right. That's what's needed. A combination of of clarity and courage. We need to know how to say the things that need to be said, and we need to say the things that need to be said, even though they're hard things sometimes. Even though they're things that people find difficult uh, to listen to. So we need that prayer. Courage. It's always taken courage to speak or to preach the gospel. And every generation has taken courage to, to preach the gospel. Back in Paul's time, obviously, they very much needed courage. They, they needed uh, God supernaturally to supply them with boldness because they were constantly faced with opposition. I mean, you can hardly read through the book of Acts without, on almost every page, finding that there's opposition to what they were doing. As they would go into the various towns and into the places uh, that they would go, the cities, the villages, whatever it might be, and as they would proclaim the gospel, lead people to Christ, there was always pushback that was taking place. There were beatings, there were arrests, there were imprisonments, there were stonings. Uh, This is what the apostles lived with. Now, through the long history of the church, this has been the experience of many people, uh, like I said a moment ago, right up to this very day in a number of different places. It is still taking your life into your hands in some places to go out and to preach the gospel. So it's always taken courage. Um, Even if you don't have that kind of... um, physical opposition or opposition from the authorities or whatever, there's, there's spiritual opposition. I'll never forget being in Union Square in New York City in, uh, what was it, September 14th, uh, 2001, three days after 9-11. And there in, in that place, having this opportunity to speak Uh, the gospel to thousands of people that were there mourning the the fact that they'd lost family and friends and loved ones and so forth. But but I'll never forget being there and and doing that and standing up with a microphone, speaking to these crowds. And in my mind, having the devil himself just pressuring me like, wait, you know, you better watch it. Oh, you say that in the name of Jesus, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. And it was just like this relentless, uh, sort of mental beating that I was experiencing while I was seeking to communicate the gospel. That's what the devil does. And, and you know, that intimidation, like, oh, don't say this. Oh, you better watch that. Oh, if you say that, you know what's going to happen. And, and that's what he tries to do. And so we need courage. And as resistance grows toward God's word in our cultural situation, as, as, we, as we're beginning to see, um, there, there's more open resistance to the word of God in this country today than there probably ever has been um, in its entire history uh, after the colonial period. There, w- there was some 
pretty intense persecution during the, the colonial period for certain people. But once the nation was established and so forth, it's been a relatively uh, free and easy environment in which to proclaim the gospel. But we're finding that uh, that's changing and it's changing rapidly. So the point is, we need courage. And how are we going to get that courage? Paul said, pray for me. Pray for me that I would have boldness. Pray for us. Let's pray for one another that I would have boldness. And he said, pray for me that I would be given this this clarity, the, the ability to speak. And notice Paul is looking at this as not something that that he is responsible to sort of conjure up. He's asking them to pray that God would give him the, the ability. He's praying for a supernatural thing. Jesus, that's exactly what he said in the passage that we read together today in Matthew chapter 10. Remember, he said, in that hour when they bring you before magistrates and kings and so forth, he said, don't meditate on what you're going to say because it will be given to you. Paul was probably thinking about what Jesus had said when he's asking for the prayer, praying that God would give. So as you pray for us, pray these things. Pray that God would give us words, clarity, the ability to, uh, in, a, in the right way, to bring the gospel to people in a clear, in a, in a straightforward way. And that we would have the boldness to step up and take advantage of the opportunities. But, you know, today, we, we really do, as I think about this, we, we need both of these things. We need the boldness, but we really need a lot of wisdom on how to, how to frame what we're going to say these days. You know, there are all, all kinds of sort of minefields out there. You're, you're walking through a minefield whenever you get up and speak. And especially if you're doing it outside of a context like we're doing it today. You know, here today, there's a lot of grace and I can pretty much, you know, say anything. And most of you are gonna say, yeah, okay, that's fine. You know, some of you might disagree a little bit, give a little bit of pushback here or there. But, but it's a different story when we go out in public, isn't it? And there you have to have a ton of wisdom and you have to really... Uh, be given by God the ability to, to frame the message in such a way as to not you know, push people away before they can actually get a chance to hear it. This is sometimes what happens. So Paul says, pray for us that we would have clarity and courage and that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul preached the gospel. And we need to think about this for a moment. We all assume that this is what we do. We preach the gospel. And yet, we can think we're preaching the gospel sometimes, and we're really not. The gospel has been even... In churches and from pulpits, the, the gospel has been uh, confused with other things. But let, let me just state what Paul preached as the gospel. Paul preached the gospel that said, in essence, this is the essence of the gospel. 
We are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but more loved than we could ever dream. It's kind of a paraphrase of a Tim Keller statement, but that's the gospel. We're more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we're more loved than we could ever dream. And this love has provided atonement for sin and deliverance from his power. You see, Paul preached a gospel that called people to come just as they are to Christ who would receive them, forgive them, and cleanse them. That's our gospel. Our gospel is a call for people to come to Jesus. That's what the gospel is. To come to Jesus who came into this world for the express purpose of taking our sin upon him and dying in our place on the cross and rising from the dead and being alive now, again, forever alive and and ready to, to come into our lives and to meet us and transform us. That is the gospel. But listen, we have to be careful that we don't substitute other things for the gospel. And this happens and it has happened and it still happens. And we've got to be on our guard that we do not substitute moralism for the gospel. You see, a lot of what is being presented as the gospel today is really, it's moralism. It's not really gospel. Moralism is essentially, okay, you, here, here's the things you've got to do and then that'll make God happy. That's moralism. The gospel is all about everything God's done. And then we just respond to that. But you see, when we focus too much on particular sins, we have drifted from the gospel to moralism. Now listen to what I mean by this. Think about this with me. When we say things like this, and we've all said it, I've said it, I've said these things. But when we say these things, We need to be aware of what we're actually doing. When we say things like this, hey, you shouldn't use that kind of language. You know, maybe you're at work, maybe you're in an office or something, somebody's got a a foul mouth and and there you are. And as a Christian, you're just, you're offended by, by the way they're talking. And you say to them, hey, you know, you shouldn't talk like that. Or maybe, you know, you, you, somebody, maybe somebody's having a drink. You say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol. Or you shouldn't be having sex with your girlfriend or with your boyfriend. Uh, Or maybe it's, uh, you know, you shouldn't be in that same sex relationship or, or whatever we might say like that. Listen, whether we intend to or not, this is important, whether we intend to or not, we are suggesting that if a person changes their behavior, then they will be accepted by God. This is religious moralism. It is not the gospel. And, and somehow that's gotten blurred, I think, in our culture. And I, I think it partially was blurred because for so long, we had a, a sort of a Christian moral consensus across the culture. And people understood, oh, you don't live together if you're not married. You don't sleep together if you're not married. That's called living in sin. Just the general population understood that terminology. People might have used foul language, but they generally tried to 
you know, use it in places where it wouldn't be uh, so offensive. Because in the culture, there was this, this, this Christian um, consensus that, that had developed. And so even as Christians ourselves, we, we sort of bought into that as, as kind of, in some ways, that sort of being the gospel. But again, remember, when you say that to somebody, you're giving the impression, now, if, if you just stop doing that, then things would be okay. But that's, that's not what the gospel says. You see, the gospel says, whether you're outwardly wicked, like the things we just mentioned, or outwardly seemingly righteous, you are a sinner, nevertheless. And the only thing that you can do to remedy your problem is to come to Christ. And you see, here's what I'm afraid has happened, and this is why we need to understand this, because it, it is a new day. It is a different time than it has been. What, what has happened is because we've confused the gospel and moralism, and we've tended to sometimes preach more of a moralism, we have put up sort of a, a barrier that's preventing people from seeing Christ. It's like we, we've blurred Jesus behind the barrier of moralism. You see, when you come to somebody today and you say, hey, you know, you shouldn't talk like that. Hey, you know, you shouldn't be living like that. You know, you automatically put up a barrier. You think they want to listen to you from that point on? No, they think you're just a judgmental hypocrite. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They never get a chance to hear about Jesus because we're hitting them with this moralism. We've got to get Jesus out in the front. And guess what? When Jesus gets a hold of people's lives, he changes their morality. That's his job. That's not our job. I mean, you could, you could get a person to stop smoking, to stop drinking, to stop cussing, to stop fornicating, to stop being in a uh, same-sex relationship. You could get them to do all of that and still they die and go to hell. Because those aren't the things. Those aren't the issues. You know, if you stop and think about it, I was thinking about this the other day. It's pretty, it's pretty radical thought. It's completely biblical and totally the case. But I think, again, sometimes we've been so influenced by some of these other things. But if you think about it, you know, none of those things that I just mentioned are the things that send people to hell. Did you realize that? People don't go to hell because of those things. People go to hell because they reject God's solution. They go to hell because they don't receive the Savior. This is condemnation, Jesus said, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. He was the light. This is the, the, the condemnation is rejecting Christ. And so we do a, a massive disservice to people and to the cause of the kingdom if we get these moralistic ideas out in the front and Jesus is obscured by that in the back. He's never even seen because once they hear about this morality, they're, they're already turned off. They're already not interested. We have got to get Jesus out in the front. The gospel that Paul preached was about Jesus. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we need boldness to preach. We need to preach Jesus. 
and that people need to come to Jesus. And as somebody says, well, wait a minute. Now, you're, you're leaving out repentance. What about repentance? Well, look, here, do you repent before you come to Jesus or after? Well, he, the reality is this. If you repented before you came to Jesus, then you're right back in that, that works thing. I used to think that way. Before I got saved, that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to get myself cleaned up enough so I could come to God and feel like it would be okay to come to him. And then whatever else needed to happen, he could take care of that. But that, the Bible doesn't teach that, does it? You see, repentance is the turning to Christ is the repentance. That's what it is to repent. It's to turn. The, the word repent means to have a change of thinking. And that's what happens. You suddenly have a change of thinking. You thought one thing or you didn't think anything about Jesus. Suddenly you have had a change in your thinking process about Jesus. You're going to come to him. And when you come to him, you're going to find that he is going to change you. He's going to give you a whole new moral outlook. He's going to give you a whole new moral standard, but he's going to come and take up residence in you. And that's how that's all going to happen. That's the gospel. And that's what we must preach. And that's what we need boldness to preach. And God help us in these days, especially to get that message out there. Don't focus on particular sins. That's an obstacle. One of the great preachers of the 20th century, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, preached in Westminster Chapel in London for many, many years. And he, the kind of a hero to many guys like myself and Pastor Chuck uh, actually met him and spent time with him. And, uh, but but one, you know, one of the great, in the tradition of great preachers, he was a great preacher. And in his lectures on preaching, one of the things he said he never did, and uh, I've read tons of his books and listened to his sermons, and, and it's true. He said he never, he never pointed out specific sins. He said, because the issue is not the specific sin. The specific sin is a symptom of the bigger issue of sin itself. And once you deal with sin itself, that's in the heart, and that that. Uh, natural internal rebellion that we have against God. Once you deal with that, then everything else will ultimately be taken care of. So he refused to preach against specific sins and just preached on the issue of sin. And I think that he had a lot of wisdom in doing that. And that's the kind of wisdom that we need for today. Because you go out on a crusade and preach against specific sins in the culture. And, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, it's just nobody's listening to you. And we, we, people have to hear. So let's not, let's not obscure Christ behind a moralistic message. Let's remember Jesus is the message. He is the gospel. What he did and our objective is to present him to people that they might come to him just as they are and knowing that he will then do the work in them that needs to be done. And so Paul prayed for that boldness to open his mouth and make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. We pointed this out early on, but Paul 
was in prison when he wrote this and several other epistles. It's interesting that he didn't write this from his pastoral office, but he wrote it from prison. He was an ambassador for Christ. He was a representative of Christ. He was in chains. He says, pray for me that I might have boldness. Paul was chained constantly to Roman soldiers. He would have needed boldness to share the gospel with them. He was in and out of uh, the courts before the judges, before the kings. Pray for me that I would have boldness. As we follow him through Acts, we see that he had boldness. Every single king he stood before, whether it was Festus or um, whether it was Felix or Agrippa or prior to them, the, the Jewish council. And then even later, when he stood before Nero, we know that he did what he asked for prayer to do. He boldly spoke to them about Christ. He was an ambassador in chains. Once again, John Stott said something on this I thought was good. He said, the term chain, he's quoting from a different person here, but he says, the term chain signifies, among other things, the golden adornments worn around the neck and wrist by rich ladies or high-ranking men. On festive occasions, ambassadors wore such chains in order to reveal the riches, power, and dignity of the government they represented. So it's, it's almost like a play on, on this kind of a thing that Paul is referring to. And so he says, because Paul serves Christ crucified, he considers the painful iron prison chains as a most appropriate insignia for the representation of his Lord. Those ambassadors coming to those great festive events with all of their chains. Paul says, I'm an ambassador and these are my chains, iron chains. But the thing that's amazing, and Stott says it here, he said, Paul most, however, is not, or what concerns Paul most, however, is not that his wrist may be unchained, but that his mouth may be open in testimony. Not that he may be set free, but that the gospel may spread freely and without hindrance. It is for this then that he prays and asks for prayer also. And then Stott says this, against such prayer, the principalities and powers are helpless. The principalities and powers are helpless against such prayers. We need to pray that God's word will go out. And anybody that you know of who is regularly engaged in proclaiming God's word, pray for them. As I've said already, pray for us. And anyone else you know, put them there that we might boldly speak forth God's word to people because that's the great need of the hour that people hear the gospel. That's what's gonna make a difference. That's what's gonna make a transformation. As we watch our, our country just kind of um, unraveling in so many ways before our eyes and we wonder, well, you know, how, how can this ever be fixed? What is the solution? The gospel is really the solution because the gospel deals with the heart. 
And it's the hearts of people that need to change. We hear story after story of people who were resistant and rebellious and who had a a particular mindset and supported a a particular uh, sinful activity, behavior, whatever. And, you know, all of the argumentation in the world and all the pushback on them, uh, you know, it, it didn't do anything except further entrench them. And then they tell the story of how they met Christ and how Jesus just changed their heart. And they went from being an an advocate of one type of a thing uh, to fully embracing God's understanding of of this particular thing and then uh, becoming a champion of that issue maybe. You see, that's what we need today. We need a change in people's hearts. And that's gonna happen through the gospel being proclaimed. That simple, straightforward message about Jesus, the savior of the world who lived and died and rose again and is alive right now and is ready to meet people right where they're at, right in their sin. And he's ready to take them and transform them. That's what we've got to focus on. So God help us to do that because as Stott said here, against such the principalities and powers are helpless. It's so true. This is how you wreck the devil's day. This is how you ruin his program. See people get saved. So God help us to do that. And just as we close finally, let's look at um, verses 23 and 24. Paul says there finally, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So peace, God's peace, love with faith. And I think faithfulness is the idea here. God is faithful. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are faithful. And then verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, amen. And this last point is this, sincerity, loving Christ in sincerity is really the issue here. The gospel is so radical, it's so personal. It's so intimate. It, it brings you into a love relationship, a sincere love relationship with the Lord that becomes the, the driving force of everything that you are and everything that you do. And if we have a Christianity that's anything less than that, we don't have a real Christianity. Many people have mistaken Christianity for church membership. They would say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I belong to such and such a church. If that's the extent of your Christianity, you've completely missed what Christianity really is. But you could even take it a step further. Maybe you just don't attend church. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe you're involved in all kinds of activities and causes and things like that. And you know what? Again, those things can become a substitute for the real thing. Don't mistake that for the real thing. The real thing is a sincere love relationship with Jesus Christ that so radically alters who you are that it becomes, as I said, it becomes the the basis, the motivation of everything that you now do. The way you think, the way you 
conduct yourself, the way you plan, the way you work. Everything now is, is um, determined ultimately because the top of the list is Jesus and your personal, sincere, loving relationship with him. And if today you don't have that, then you don't have real Christianity because that's what it is. It's a sincere, loving relationship with Christ. And Paul says, grace be with those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Let's pray. So Lord, we do thank you for our time as we've studied this letter together and as we come now to the conclusion and these final words, Lord, would you just refresh us in our understanding, in our hearts, Lord, about the gospel and about the gospel for ourselves, Lord, that we would never forget the gospel that saved us, that we would go back to it over and over again and revisit it, that Lord, our love for you might be sincere, truly, and that it might be over and over again rekindled as we think about who you are and what you've done and all that you've promised to do. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you work among us? Lord, would you give us clarity as we speak, as we have opportunities to talk with and share with others? Give us clarity. Give us boldness, Lord, to speak as we ought to speak when the occasion arises. And Lord, help us to remember that you are the center of the gospel and that we're not preaching a theory. We're not even preaching a theology. We're preaching a person, a living person who has the power to forgive sins and to transform lives. Help us, Lord, to never forget what you did for us and to let that be the driving force as we go forward with your gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen.